if you have a friend who is really going through a tough time, um, what do you say to them? When you yourself are going through a tough time, life is, is really difficult, um, how do you make sense of that? It's interesting that when the Apostle Paul set pen to paper in an effort to encourage his fellow Christians in Rome who were suffering from persecution, suffering from serious persecution, it's interesting that he did not say what so many people put forward today. That is, everything happens for a reason. He didn't say that. That's not a verse that you will find in Scripture. Instead, he does address their suffering, but he addresses that suffering in uh, what, in my judgment, is far more sensitive and a far more thoughtful and uh, a much more carefully nuanced way. And it's interesting that what he had to say to uh, his fellow Christians in Rome who were suffering has been characterized not just as one of the best-known texts in the Bible, not just as one of the most sweeping and best-loved promises in all of the Bible. It's been described as the greatest verse in Scripture. In fact, in an article called The Favorite Bible Verses of 88 Nations, Christianity Today identified it as the world's favorite Bible verse. Uh, for those of us who use version, it has been highlighted and shared and bookmarked more than any other verse in Scripture. Well, this weekend, we are continuing our message series, our summer teaching series on the texts that have touched us. And for those of you who've been with us during this journey, this is a series in which we have been uh, exploring how God has challenged and uh, inspired sometimes comforted and transformed members of our church family through passages of Scripture that have come to hold special meaning for us. This week, we are looking at a verse in Paul's letter to the Romans, was chosen by one of the members of our congregation, Dorothy Emery, and here she is to read it now. Hi, I'm Dorothy Emery. And our, our verse for today is Romans 8:28. For all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. Great verse. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Paul's letter uh, to the Romans. Paul's letter to the church in Rome was written probably 57, 58 A.D., something like that while he was staying in Corinth near the end of his third missionary journey. This was a letter that was actually hand-delivered uh, to uh, Roman Christians by a church leader whose name was Phoebe. Uh, Phoebe lived in a, a little harbor town that was close to Corinth called Cenchreae. And Paul's letter to the Romans is considered by scholars to be his greatest literary achievement, uh, one of his greatest, if not the greatest, theological achievement. And Romans 8, from which today's text is taken, has been called uh, by at least one scholar as the high watermark of the New Testament. 
One of the things I would encourage you to do after worship today, go home and just read uh, the, the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. It is amazing. Uh, it contains so many verses that are worth memorizing. It begins uh, with, uh, with the, the promise that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Talk about an encouraging verse. And it ends with the, the, the words that uh, nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, it's, to me, it's remarkable and I think it's a little bit counterintuitive that a chapter that has so many inspiring verses and that so many people have, uh, have found so uplifting uh, really has so much to say about suffering. In the verses that, that lead up to today's text, after you know, Paul told, has you know, said to his friends, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean there's no suffering for us. Uh, Paul, Paul has been describing in the verses leading up to Romans 8, 28, how our present sufferings, he's been talking about suffering, how our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's talking about a future hope, but it's in the context of a lot of pain in the present. He describes how the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. One of the great affirmations of the Christian faith is that, that um, when human beings brought sin and death into the world because of our choice not to um, obey God and submit our, ourselves to God, but instead make ourselves the center of our universe, that that has had implications not only for us personally, but not only our relationship with God and our relationship with other people, but even creation suffers from the consequences of sin. He goes on to say how we ourselves, he's describing Christians, how we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. He even goes so far as to say that the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. There's a lot of groaning in Romans chapter 8. And it's in the midst of this discussion about our present suffering and the groaning of creation and our groaning as we uh, await redemption and even the groaning of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit prays and intercedes on our behalf it's in that context that Paul proclaims, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, it's interesting and it's important that we notice how Paul prefaces this extraordinary statement. He begins with the words, we know. We know. And starting with those words, what he's signaling is that for followers of Jesus Christ, this is a foundational conviction. This is a foundational conviction. It is not just a personal belief or a wish. It is a shared core conviction. We know this 
together as the church of Jesus Christ. It's really important that we know this together as the church of Jesus Christ because at any given moment, you know, any one of us might be in, in so much pain that, you know, we kind of lose our focus and we forget what's important and we forget what we believe or we start to have our doubts. But when that happens, we as a church hold these core convictions in trust for those who are going through tough times. And by the way, this is not only is this something we know, it's a shared conviction, we know this. This isn't something we just feel. It's not just something we wish were true or imagine or hope for. It is something we know to be true. And we know it to be true because it rests on a secure foundation. It rests on the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. It rests on the historical uh, truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know. And just, just what is it that we know? Well, we, we know for one thing, and it's super clear, we know that God is at work in the world for the good. God is at work in the world for the, the good. Even when we're going through pain, God is at work in the world for the good. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Now, this, this verse is actually, um, can be, according, it's originally written in Greek, of course, and because of the Greek grammar and structure and stuff, it can be and has been and translated in a number of different ways. When Dorothy read it to us just a little while ago, she quoted the King James Version. She grew up with that. That's the one that she memorized it in. And this is how the King James Version has it. Check it out. We know that all things work together for good. Now, what's the, what is the subject of that sentence? Sorry to sound like an English teacher, but English teachers are great. So, we know that all things work together for good. The subject of that sentence is all things. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now, one of the things we need to realize, if you're reading the King James Version, and that's the way you memorized it, or that's the, the version of Scripture you're reading, it doesn't mean that all things work together for good on their own. It doesn't mean that there is sort of some magical, mystical, inevitable process by means of which... No matter what happens to you in life, it's all going to turn out great. It's not saying that. God makes them work together for good when the proper conditions are met. But it is God who is doing it. Um, a week or two ago, um, I came this close to cutting the cord, getting rid of cable TV. I had done a lot of research, you know, I looked at all these, you know, different ways of, of getting TV that are a lot, and isn't it, it I, don't you guys get frustrated where, you know, the, the cable companies kind of hook you with these teaser rates, and then a year later you get this bill and you go, what? You know, it's like, how did this happen? So anyway, I started looking at some different options, and Peg and I discussed it and really came this close. I called up our cable company and said, you know, we're, we're going to discontinue cable. And they said, oh, why are you doing that? And we said, because it's just so expensive. We don't want to pay this. And 
They said, why? What are you, what are you looking at? What are your favorite TV or, you know, channels and stuff like that? I said, I don't really want to go into it. No, just let me. So, okay. So I told them, they, and anyway, after we had this conversation, they said, tell you what, we'll drop your rates, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, it's like the mob. You want to leave, but you can't. <laughs> but... Um, but anyway, uh, one of the things that uh, was really, there are certain channels that are just important to us. And for me, um, BBC America, got to have that. Food Network. <laughs> so, I mean, if, it's like I watch it pretty much every day. Any guesses as to my two favorite programs on the Food Network? Chopped. Chopped. And number two? You got it. You guys know me. That's amazing. Chopped in diners, drive-ins, and dives. They're inspiring to me. Now, for, for the, those of you who are not familiar with Chopped, let me just set it up for you. It's a competition where four different chefs, and sometimes they're kid chefs, and sometimes they're celebrity chefs, but usually, you know, they're just people that, you know, have uh, restaurants and, and this kind of stuff. Uh, they get together to compete against one another, and it's like an elimination round. There are three rounds. They start out with four people after the first round, which is the appetizer round. You know, they make an appetizer, they eliminate one of the people, and then they have the entree round, and they eliminate another uh, person. So it's down to two people for the dessert round, and then they, based on the dessert and the other stuff that people had made, they make a decision as to who is going to be the chop champion. Now, and this is judged by three, uh, you know, kind of rotating different uh, uh, culinary experts. And so, so anyway, the way it works is they're all given a mystery basket at the beginning of each one of these rounds. And you don't know what's in the mystery basket except that it has four ingredients. So you'll say, they'll, they'll start out and say, today we're going to do the uh, appetizer, or right now we're going to do the appetizer round, and let's open our baskets and see what's inside. And they'll pull stuff out, and, and it'll be like Vegemite, um, stale movie popcorn, uh, Rocky Mountain Oysters, and um, Blackstrap Molasses. Make an appetizer. And so you've got 30 minutes, go, and these people just start running all over the place, and they, they make something, and then at the end of the 30 minutes, the, the chefs uh, try their different food and all this kind of stuff, and somebody will walk up and say, you know, today I've made you a lovely Rocky Mountain oyster spring roll with, a, you know, this kind of glaze and so on, and they'll judge the, the people and so on. Now, why am I mentioning this stuff? Any one of those things in and of itself probably isn't going to taste that great. But, you know, if you've got somebody that really knows food and they have imagination, they can take the, the most horrible basket full of stuff and they can make some amazing thing out of it. And this is what God does with the mess of our lives. For those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He's, God is the chop champion. He's the ultimate chop champion. But, but God, God does this uh, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 only when certain conditions are met. The NIV has it. We know that in all things, God works for the good. Now, you see how that's different than what that says. 
we know that in all things, God works for the good. Here are the conditions of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now, it, it's easy when you read those words to assume that we understand the meaning of those words. Or uh, we bring assumptions to it such that we, we believe we know what Paul's talking about. But we might not. Everything hinges on how we understand the words, the good. In all things, God works for the good. What is the good that God's working for? Let's put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it in a sec. Now, when Paul writes, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. He's reminding us of something else that we know. Not, o- not only do we know that God is at work, at the work in the world for the good, but there's something else we know. There's another foundational core conviction that is shared by every follower of Jesus Christ, and is held in trust by the church. And that is that God is fully in control. God is fully in control. This is um, often referred to, you know, theological circles as the sovereignty of God. Whenever people talk about the sovereignty of God, they're talking about God being in control. Notice that Paul isn't saying that God is at work only in the good things. And it's interesting because that's how most people tend to, um, to think of the sovereignty of God or tend to see God at work in their lives when they are experiencing blessing. It's also the time when we um, oftentimes um, are, are most tempted to forget God when, you know, we kind of treat our blessings as entitlements. But Paul... Paul here isn't saying that God is only at work in the good things, that God is only at work in the spiritual things, that God is only at work in special things, you know, when we have a special uh, spiritual experience or whatever. He's not saying that it's only in the positive things in life. Paul wants us to know God is at work in all things, and all things includes bad things. As a matter of fact, that's really, I I think, the the main burden of uh, what Paul has to say here in the context of this discussion he's been having on suffering. All things includes bad things. And and there are bad things in life. You know, that's not a newsflash. We are fallen people who live in a fallen world with other fallen people. Uh, each one of us, because of this you know, kind of sin nature that we have, we, we really experience life, and it's true. I mean, just phenomenologically, this is true. We experience life as if we were the center of the universe. When we're in a conflict with another person, we see ourselves as the center of the universe, and whenever we're in a conflict, we just make the assumption we're right, they're wrong. And they're making the same assumption. It can't both be right. Now, we, it, bad stuff happens because we are fallen people living in a fallen world with other fallen people. But because of God's goodness and mercy and grace, there is still so much in the world that remains good. But there's sorrow. 
and there's hurt and there's heartache and there's evil in the world as well. And the good news of the gospel is that even though we and the world in which we live are fallen, God is at work in the world for the good and God is fully in control. It may not always feel that way to us. We may not understand how that can be true. It's like when we're really little kids and you know, we, uh, we hear our parents talking about stuff that we just don't have the, the capacity or the experience to understand. They could explain it to us and we wouldn't get it. When we're going through tough times, you know, there are just times in life where it it feels to us like the world is spinning out of control and there's nobody at the helm. When that happens, that's when we especially need to remember, no, God is in control. And I think one of the the helpful tools that we have as, uh, as Christians is Scripture. Because Scripture reminds us and gives us uh, lots and lots of examples of how God is in control. Turn to stories in the Bible where people who've gone through really troubled times, incredible suffering, were given the opportunity when the story was over, when all was said and done, they could look back on their lives and say, you know, I didn't see it at the time. I couldn't see it at the time. As human beings, we live life from past to present to future. It's only when we arrive in the future and are looking back that we can kind of see that the trajectory of our life is going along a God-given direction. And it's only then, in some ways, that we can see, wow, God was really in control of that. Let me give you an example of this. It's a great biblical example. Uh, It's the story of Joseph in the very first book of the Bible book of, of Genesis, Genesis 37, uh, chapter 37 through 50. You might remember this story of Joseph. Joseph was uh, kind of a favored kid as he was uh, growing up. That's why he got that, you know, special coat that, uh, that they've written musicals about. Um, but because he was sort of this, the favored child in the family, his brothers hated him. And he kept having these dreams. And the dreams, he's a little kid. He's having these dreams about how all of his brothers are going to be bowing down to him and all this kind of stuff. You don't want to tell your brothers this. But he does, and, and they hate him for it. Uh, as a matter of fact, they, their hatred for him grows so much over the years that they kind of, you know, take him away from, um, from the father and so on. And um, they decide just to get rid of him. They throw him into a pit. They're going to leave him for dead. And then they look off and they see this uh, like caravan of slave traders that are headed to Egypt. And they said, hey, wh- let's sell him to the slave traders. Joseph is carried down to Egypt. And um, he, he's, uh, as a slave, he's bought by this guy named Potiphar and um, because Joseph is just this amazingly gifted guy and so on, he helps Potiphar and Potiphar prospers and so on. And Potiphar's wife is super attracted to Joseph and tries to seduce him. And he won't have anything to do with it because he's a person of integrity. And so she accuses him of sexual assault and he's thrown into prison. Totally unjust. 
but he's thrown into prison, and he's forgotten for years. In the course of his stay in uh, the prison, uh, he interprets the dreams of uh, some people who are there because he's good at and God's given him this, this gift. And a couple of the people uh, for whom he interprets dreams happen to be in the employment of uh, Pharaoh. Joseph just says, hey, you know, if, if you get out of here, just, you know, maybe you could mention me to Pharaoh so I can get out. Anyway, he's forgotten then. And then years later, one of these guys uh, remembers him because Pharaoh starts having these bad dreams and he doesn't know what they mean. He goes, oh, yeah, I was supposed to tell you. And so Joseph is brought to Pharaoh, interprets his dreams, basically rescues the people of, uh, of Egypt from a famine that they weren't even aware was coming. And ultimately, Joseph, because of the position um, that he is granted by Pharaoh, is able to save the brothers who had tried to kill him. And he is able to save his entire family. And in fact, he is able to save all of the Jewish people from death by famine. As, as Joseph, in, in a really dramatic scene, is revealing who he is for the first time to his brothers, and they're worried about, oh my gosh, we tried to kill you and look at this power you have and so on. Uh, Joseph takes the high road and says, you know, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many people. You know, at any given moment in Joseph's life, you know, while he's being thrown into a pit or sold to slave owners or sitting in prison, falsely accused of sexual assault, any given point along the way, you know, I, I doubt that Joseph said, oh, yeah, I can see where this is headed. It's only in looking back that, that he understands what Paul writes about, that all, all this is working for the good <laughs> because he, Joseph, loved God and had been called according to his purpose. If you're looking for a New Testament example, I can't think of a better one than the crucifixion of Jesus, where the Roman and uh, the Jewish religious leadership conspire to, together in a, a certain sense. Jesus is unjustly condemned for blasphemy and sedition. He suffers and dies a criminal's death on a cross as an innocent man. And why? So that countless millions could be saved. So we could, could be saved not only from the penalty of sin because he paid the price on the cross. He paid a price he didn't know. Oh, because we owe uh, this debt that we couldn't pay. He saved us not only from the, the penalty of sin, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being saved from the power of sin. And ultimately, Paul tells us in this very passage in Romans 8, we're going to even be saved from the presence of sin. Jesus, too, could have said, you intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. So we know that we know this is a core conviction. It is a shared 
core conviction. It is foundational. We know that God is at work in the world for the good. We know that God is fully in control. Whether we see it at any given moment or understand how that's all playing out at any given time, we, we hold this, for, this core conviction that no matter what I'm going through, God's at work in it. If. Now notice, it's conditional. If. If what? Romans 8.28 is not a universal promise. It is a conditional statement. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. It only holds for those who love the Lord and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, some of you might hear that and not like it. Or you might have friends who, you know, might read this and they won't like it because you're asking, hey, wait a second, that's not fair. That is not fair. Why doesn't God just work for the good of everybody? Not just the people who love him. Well, you know, there, there are a couple of responses uh, to that. One is, God does give blessing to everybody. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. That's one of the things that Scripture teaches. There is such a thing as kind of a general grace that all human beings in, enjoy. I, th I think another response um, depends on what we mean by good, which I promise we'll get to in a second. It's still got a pin in it. But the other thing is this. God knows, God understands, and God honors what is in our hearts. I want you to think about that for a second. God knows, God understands, and God honors what is in our hearts, even if it grieves him. And the way it plays out is this. If you love God, and if you have been called according to his purpose, if you want God to be at work in your life, God knows that, and God will honor that. But here's the thing. If you don't want anything to do with God, God knows that and will honor that as well but you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I don't want to have anything to do with God, but I want him to work for good in my life. That's, that's a, a self-refuting, it's a self-contradictory statement. It's inconsistent. For this promise to be applicable to us, it, Paul is, is saying, and it's meant to be an encouragement for people who are suffering persecution because of their belief in the Lord. For this promise to be applicable, we need to love and be called by God according to his purpose. And what does it mean to love God? We need to love God. Not just love the blessings that he gives us. Not just Love God for the gifts, 
that he gives us because really it's more, then it becomes more about the gifts and the blessings than it is about God. No, we need to love God for who he is, desiring God, treasuring God, delighting in God, valuing God, cherishing our relationship with God, worshiping God, obeying God out of love for who he is, period. And when we love God and have been called according to his purpose, that's when we can know without a doubt in all things God is working for the good. Now we're at the question. What's this good? We're going through all this junk. What is the good? Let's listen as um, one of the great Stowbridge Saints, Dorothy Emery, tells her story. I just returned from, from our second term on the mission field. Um, we, we returned early because of my husband's serious illness. And at that point, um, both his health and our future was very much up in the air. One morning, uh, I was sitting uh, about to start my, my devotions, and I got to thinking about all the things that seemed to have gone wrong. And in my mind uh, popped Romans 8.28. And, you know, I really didn't like that verse very well because it seemed as though the only people that quoted it were people that didn't have any problems. Um, and that particular morning, that verse was like trying to cover a gaping wound with a Band-Aid. And I exploded at the Lord. I said, if you'll show me just one good thing that's coming out of all this. And I stormed and cried for, uh, for quite a while. He could have zapped me, but he didn't. <laughs> and when I calmed down, there was this quiet inner voice that said, keep going, keep going. And I didn't know what that meant at first. And then, oh, the next verse. Well, I'd never memorized verse 29, you know. So I grabbed my Bible and, and I looked it up. And there it was. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I let that sink in a minute. And I said, Lord, are you telling me that you're going to use all this, all this mess to make me more like Jesus? And that's your purpose in allowing this to happen? All right, all right, I, I, I really want that. And you know, those next years were not easy years, but he showed me what he was doing and it made all the difference in the world. But it's a process, you know, and it's been going on and is still going on. But I, I love what John wrote. He said, we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And one of these days, I'm going to look the Lord in the face and know that the process is complete and that it was worth it all.
Such a, such a great testimony. You know, uh, Dorothy first told me that story um, a year or two ago, and I remember when she was telling me, and, and uh, she said that the, the Lord said, keep going, keep going. I thought she was going to take it in a completely different direction, like don't give up. Reminds me of something Winston Churchill once said, you know, if you're going through hell, the best thing that you could do is keep going. I thought that's where she was going with it, but no, it was the next verse. Keep going. Read the next verse. If you love God, if you have been called according to his purpose, God has a plan for your life. And let me tell you about that plan. God, God has a plan and a purpose that cannot be thwarted. It is unstoppable. God plans his intention. If you love God and if you have been called according to his purpose, God's plan for your life, his purpose that cannot be thwarted, is to make you more like Jesus. When we first accept Christ, you know, that, that's when we experience and claim for ourselves how we have been freed from the penalty of sin. And then the Holy Spirit, you know, God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, through this process that, that Dorothy was describing, it's really important that we understand it's a process. It doesn't happen just like that. We don't become perfect overnight. But through this process, we are more and more freed from the power of sin. And let me just give you a word of encouragement. If sin isn't as fun to you as it used to be, God's at work in your life. And then ultimately, we are even freed from the presence of sin. That's our, our glorification. Sin at, at some point will no longer even be a part of our lives. And that's a, that is a certainty. Listen to what, what Paul says here. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Pause button. These, those two words have created all kinds of theological controversy over the years and so on. Let me just try to very briefly highlight a couple things. I'm not going to do a big thing on the doctrine of predestination and all this kind of stuff because it would take us a series that would probably last through the end of the year. Uh, I have other things to do. But it says, for those whom God foreknew, God foreknows, God knows in advance, how does that work out? One of the things uh, about our experience as human beings is we live in time, duh, but we do. And we experience time as this uh, uh, it, it seemingly irreversible process. It just you know, moves in one direction and stuff, and we can know what's happening now, and we can know what's happened before, but we don't know what's going to happen in the future until we get there. For God, God can look at all of time. God is eternal. And what does that mean? All of time is eternally present to God. So he can look at our future, and as far as God is concerned, oh, yeah, I know where this is going. He also predestined. What does that mean? Look at the context, the specific context here. For those God foreknew, he also predestined for what? to be conformed to the image of his son. For those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, according to Paul, God has 
predestined you to become like Jesus. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Dorothy had it exactly right. Uh, what a saint. That, but she had it exactly right when she says that that's an ongoing process. And it's going to be ongoing as long as we live in this world. But while it is an ongoing process for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, that is a process that cannot be thwarted. And listen to that. That is because, and here's the next verse, those he predestined, predestined for what? Be conformed to the image of the Son. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, treated me just as if I'd never sinned because of Jesus' death on the cross taking our place. He also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You know what's interesting about that verse? That he also glorified is in the past tense. As far as God's concerned, it's a done deal. That's how sure we can be about it. Every experience in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you love God, if you have been called according to his experience, every experience in life, including those that grieve God's heart, can be used by God to make you more like Jesus. Every experience in life can, can correct you. You know, when you do something stupid and you go, I'm not going to do that again. God's working for the good. He can use it to correct you, to direct you. Closing this door, opening another. God can use uh, experiences to protect us. If you've ever prayed a prayer that you've looked back on and said, what was I thinking? And sometimes we pray prayers like that. Anybody ever pray for a relationship that you, you know, really wanted to be in and then afterwards, like Garth Brooks, you say, I thank God for unanswered prayers? But ultimately, God is at work in all things to perfect you. There's a, um, a, that Christmas uh, carol, Away in a Manger. Uh, one of the lines is, it fit us for heaven to be with you there. Perfect us so that we will be, be with you. To prepare us for a future glory that awaits all those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose. God's purpose in your problems to make you like Jesus. That's God's purpose in your problems, to make you like Jesus. Because it is character, not comfort. It is our holiness, not necessarily our happiness, that matters most to God. As fallen people living in a fallen world with other fallen people, we will without question. Experience hurts and hardships and sorrow and suffering in our lives. 
But for those who know and love God and who have been called according to his purposes, God will use all of it. That mystery basket that is in your life that has got all kinds of stuff, some that you like and some that you don't. God's the chop champion who can take that and make something really beautiful out of it. As Timothy Keller put it, you know, Jesus didn't suffer so that you wouldn't suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you will become like him. If you're going through a tough time right now, be encouraged. Because you are a part of a church family that knows something. We have a foundational core conviction. We know that in all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose.